So imagine you're back in training in the ED. But John, a lot of our listeners are in training. Yes, but some of them will also have to imagine pretty far back to remember this. All right, so anyway, you're asked to admit a 65-year-old female. She is a UTI. It should be easy enough, right? Your confidence builds a bit as you correctly remember your UTI antibiotics, but then you see her blood pressure. It's 85 over 54. You make sure that she gets some fluid. You breathe a little sigh of relief as it gets better with an initial fluid bolus. Even in your new level of training, you know this patient is septic and at risk for septic shock. Your heart rate starts to increase as your mind wanders with a whole list of questions. God, does she have septic shock? Do I need a liner? Now or later? Does she really need the ICU? Because her blood pressure is already better with fluids. You settle down a bit and get a quick history from her daughter who is at bedside. She came over to visit her mother and found her to be confused and burning up. She checked her temp and it was over 101. The nurse finds you and she says that the UA is dirty. She stands there with a polite but quizzical expression on her face, waiting for your answer. You struggle to remember each element of the sepsis three-hour bundle, but you feel a little better as you blurt out, give her 30 cc's per kg of IV fluid, broad-spectrum antibiotics, make sure you draw lactate and blood cultures. You sit down. You collect yourself a little bit and start to thumb through a chart. The nurse comes back with a little more purpose in her step than before. Her lactate is 4.5, she says. Your heart rate increases again. You know patients with high lactates have a higher mortality. You're struggling to remember if they all need ICU and aggressive treatment or not. But you remember River's protocol earlier in your training. And per Rivers, you should admit her to the ICU, place a central line, start monitoring her CVP, her mean arterial pressure, and an SCVO2. Or should you? Hey there, I'm Jeremy Mayo, your host. And John Heisler, co-host. Jer, here we are doing a podcast on sepsis. Yeah, you realize that there's a billion podcasts about sepsis. I think it's the most podcasted about subject in the entire medical education world. I know, I know, but we talk about it every day. Not a good reason to podcast about it. Okay. Well, the real reason we decided to do a podcast about it is our trainees over the last few years are getting progressively more confused about sepsis. But I don't really understand how that can be because there's so much material out there about it, right? There may be too much material on it at this point and lots of hyperbole. Once all the new trials came out, there was many podcasts speaking to the death of Rivers and early goal-directed therapy. Meanwhile, their surviving sepsis campaign continued to recommend using Rivers protocol in their guidelines. Also, just a little later, new sepsis definitions came along, and between all of that, sepsis officially got harder to teach trainees. So listen up, Poemcasters. Our plan today is to do a multi-part sepsis episode focusing on some core content and the history of sepsis up to today. We plan on getting into the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, Rivers 2001, the newer trials including Process, Promise, and Arise, the sepsis 3.0 definitions, and a whole lot more. In episode five, we're going to attempt to utilize Craig Patterson. He's one of our critical care physician leaders, and he's going to help us to unify all of this history into a cohesive message on how to deal with sepsis in modern times. And then, as guidelines change, which they're rumoredly doing so soon, then we'll update you on those guidelines in future podcasts. I've been doing ICU medicine for long enough now to see Rivers Protocol being implemented at multiple hospitals and I've seen it reduce mortality. Make no mistake, skeptics have many, many well-founded points against early goal-directed therapy and Rivers Protocol. What newer providers may not know is this isn't anything new. 
Providers have critiqued this study essentially since it came out in 2001. But before we dig into the literature, let's do some core content. Without further ado, what exactly is sepsis? It's SIRS plus known or suspected infection, right? Eh, sort of. The purists out there would cringe at using definition and criteria interchangeably. Their argument would be that criteria change, as we've seen with sepsis 3.0, but the disease process itself doesn't change. I was just testing you. So the real definition of sepsis is essentially a dysregulated host response to infection that ultimately leads to organ dysfunction. Totally right. So the general progression of sepsis is the introduction of a microbe, and it can be anything, bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites into the body. At this point, the binding of microbial patterns to the host pattern receptors leads to the production of three things that we really care about, pro-inflammatory cytokines, pro-coagulation cytokines, and reactive oxygen species. So the dysregulated response that we keep talking about essentially boils down to inflammation, coagulation, and the generation of reactive oxygen species. Yep. And the problem with these three features is that they all tend to beget one another. So the end result is this positive feedback loop between many, 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 many different pathways. The specifics are probably way above the scope of this podcast, but the bottom line is that this inflammacooxidative hurricane leads to microcirculatory dysfunction, global tissue hypoxia, and dysoxia, and organ dysfunction or failure. Hold on. Did you just say inflammacooxidative hurricane? Sure did, because sepsis is an inflammation, coagulation, and oxidation hurricane. Patent pending. Wow, Jeremy. So we cover the definition and pathophysiology behind sepsis, but we need to talk about the criteria for diagnosing sepsis. How are we diagnosing the disease nowadays? Really, that depends on who you ask. For now, we're only going to talk about the old definitions, but we'll cover new definitions in a later episode. Remember, according to the old definitions, sepsis is a spectrum of disease that includes sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. Like we said earlier, the diagnosis of sepsis requires SIRS, two out of the four of the following, fever, or hypothermia, leukocytosis, or bandemia, tachycardia, and tachypnea, or hypotapnea. So severe sepsis is essentially sepsis with evidence of organ dysfunction. So we think of things like acute kidney injury, thrombocytopenia, coagulopathy, respiratory failure. You can see the show notes for more information. Finally, septic shock is sepsis with persistent hypotension or hypoperfusion. That's a MAP less than 65 or a lactate greater than 4 with the caveat of after appropriate fluid resuscitation has been administered. Okay, so to summarize, body attacks microbe but goes overboard, causes an inflammacooxidative hurricane, patent pending, which leads to systemic badness, and sepsis is a spectrum ranging from plain sepsis to florid septic shock. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, uh, I guess maybe I could have, but uh, you did okay. <laughs> so back to our patient, the 65-year-old confused lady sitting in the ED waiting on you to figure out what to do with her? All right. So in the times before the new trials, if you were a purist, you'd admit her to the ICU, you'd place a central line, you'd f- run the full Rivers protocol with CVP, MAP, and SCVO targets. In the modern times, post-new trials, you could admit this patient to the floor with a provider rerounding on her after she has gotten her initial rounds of fluids and antibiotics. Yeah, you could trend lactate and you could utilize other factors, right? Exam, vitals, 
ultrasound, you could reassess her at the time of your rerounding. So she doesn't necessarily need a central line if she doesn't decompensate on your reassessment. If she improves, then you have validated that you made the right choice and she can continue to get her current care with antibiotics and close monitoring on the floor. If she decompensates, you can always place a central line and get more aggressive at that time. So maybe Rivers Protocol made us frequently reevaluate our patients. And I guess as long as we reevaluate them, then maybe not every patient needs a central line for CVP and SCVO2 monitoring. This type of patient has traditionally been one of the more debated patient presentations in our division for quite some time, but I think that we're starting to hint at what our final conclusion is going to be at the end of this podcast series. You're right. This high lactate but normotensive septic patient comes up a lot in sepsis debates. Everyone agrees a patient with true septic shock should get some type of aggressive care, and the patients with sepsis but no real evidence of in-organ damage should just get antibiotics, some fluids, and close monitoring. It's these patients in the middle that are harder to know what to do with. Our sepsis coordinator has been tracking these patients, and the volume is nowhere near as high in the current system as you would expect compared to how much we discuss them. Correct. Some months they're in the single digits, even in a large healthcare system we are currently in. We're going to stop episode one here, but please keep listening to the rest of the series. You'll be taking on an adventure from sepsis in 2001 to its current state, and it's surely a journey you won't want to miss. Who knew practicing medicine required historical knowledge? We still all talk about William Osler all the time, so it should be expected at this point. Until next time, y'all, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.